I want to talk to you this morning about a very familiar passage, possibly the most familiar passage in Scripture. Uh, yes, if you have children and you'd like for them to go, you can send them right to that big guy in the back and he'll make sure that they get to the right place. Um, this is a passage of Scripture that probably most people recognize it's familiar to them, uh, but probably have never really dug into all that much. If I were to ask you, what's the most, what is the most popular verse in the Bible, you would say John 3.16. So guess where we're going today? That's a good guess. But we're dealing with it from a little different aspect. And what I would like to do with you this morning is I'd like to walk through John chapter 3 as if we were Nicodemus, not Jesus. A lot of times we approach this passage like we're Jesus, you know, and trying to talk to this guy and he's, he's off on some theological things. I want to approach it the other direction this morning. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to do with you this morning. But before that, let me give you a little view, a little snapshot into our world today. Most of the Americans that live on American soil, no matter where it is, claim to be Christians. In fact, a Pew uh, study in 2019 said that 65% of all Americans claim to be Christian. However, between 2000 and 2019, the number of churches in America decreased by 11%. Some research, actually in further in this Pew research, found that 20% of those people who claimed to be Christians did not believe in the God of the Bible. In fact, 78% of those same people believe that Jesus is a creature created by God, the first being created by God. Nine out of ten households in the United States have one Bible. Most have at least three. But only 37% of those households with these Bibles believe that the Bible is true. In fact, about half believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual, homosexual behavior is outdated, and that is growing in our world today. 46% of those Americans who say that they're Christian actually believe in gender identity clearly being influenced by the culture. Ask them these same questions 10 years ago, you would get a variety of multiply different answers. Culture moves us in a direction, and we retain the idea of Christianity, but we morph with culture. We used to criticize France. That is, by the way, I don't know if you know this, France is the greatest Christian nation on the planet. Did you know that? They have the most Christians of any nation on the planet, and yet uh, their, their statistics are a little higher than ours. 65% of Fran France claim to be Christian, and yet their churches are, are renowned for being empty on Sundays. In fact, only 5% of France attend church at least once a month, while 65% claim to be Christians. It is the lowest attendance of church of all the major countries of the world. Here's a little uh, diagram. Did I get that diagram? There's the diagram right there. 65% claim to be Christian. There's Muslim in there. There's, there's some nuns in there. Not nuns like Catholic nuns. There's N-O-N-E. They call them nuns. They're not re religiously affiliated. 
And we used to criticize France and say, holy smokes, France is like 65% say that they're Christians, but only 5% go to church at least once a month. And those statistics are beginning to, to visit American shores. Only 31% of Americans, as of 2021, that's last year, only 31% of Americans attend church at least once a month. Now, you're probably saying, Craig, those are old statistics. Well, what about COVID? COVID really knocked those down. Nope, it didn't because up to 2019, only 34% attended church at least one time a month. And yet, America claims to be a Christian nation. We have Bibles, we have church buildings, we have all of these things. We say that we're a Christian nation, and yet we morph with culture, and we do not even know that Jesus Christ claims to be God himself. All of this to say Christianity is becoming more of a cultural description rather than a core belief of most people. I experienced this probably <laughs> most. Uh, I did a class, a new members class. Uh, this was several years ago. Uh, and I had these Lutherans that were attending this new members class. They had started coming to church because snow had, had, had caused their, their roof to fall in of their building. And so they wanted to attend somewhere else. And so they looked around, and I had a relationship with some of the other pastors in the area. And so they figured, well, we'll just go check out this church over here. So they started coming. They liked it. The roof was getting repaired. They decided they were going to stay with us for a while, which is fine with me. So I sat around the table, and I said, okay, we, you got to know what we believe. Ten weeks, I talked with them about what we believed. And it was nothing deep, like, like, we talked about the Trinity, we talked about how to read your Bible, we talked about the act, action of the Holy Spirit. We didn't go into su super lapsarianism. We didn't deal with any of those deep theological subjects. We didn't even cover Calvinism versus amillennial. We didn't cover any of that, or Arminianism, or even amillennialism. We didn't cover any of that stuff. We covered the basics, 10 weeks. At the end of 10 weeks, I said, okay, now, I gave them questions along the way, but at the end of 10 weeks, I said, okay, is there any final questions? And the guy to my right glared at me. I could tell I was in trouble because I've been glared at before. <laughs> so I'm sitting there thinking to myself, okay, he's definitely upset. And I said, I didn't call him by name. I said, Jim, do you have a question? He said, yeah, I'm mad. I said, okay, well, what are you mad about? He said, I am so angry that I have attended church my whole life. I have given to church. I have served in church. I have been active in church. And I have never heard any of this. And then somebody across the table from the same church that just happened to be coming along, they banged their fist on the table and they said, I'm angry too. And I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. And I said, why are you angry? And they said, because the same thing, I've never heard any of this before. Why am I just hearing this now? And I told them, I said, listen, you might be victim of cultural Christianity. Your Christianity was given to you. It was just a natural thing. You grew up with it, but you never had an opportunity to explore it, and nobody ever sat down with you and said, there's a lot of meat here. Let's dig in. And they got mad because I believe they were believers, 
They had the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in them, but they've never been fed. And once they started feeding, they realized how hungry they were. 65% of Americans claim to be believers. And yet most of those I would define as cultural Christians. What is a cultural Christian versus a true Christian? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to try and stand in the middle here and be surrounded by these, this wonderful slide that I spent hours making. So if you want to take a picture, this would be a good one to take a picture of. The difference between cultural Christianity, there are a few. Cultural Christians grow up as Christians. They're born with it. True Christians, they define themselves as confessing sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. Cultural Christians attend church for nostalgia. True Christians attend church to worship. Cultural Christians rarely serve or give, and when they do, it's to gain something. True Christians sacrifice in love to Jesus Christ. I went to a conference and I heard some guy talk about how we should serve God because of the crowns we get into heaven. He had his whole set, his whole, his whole like day was centered around that thought. When you serve Jesus Christ, it is mainly because you get rewards in heaven. So after lunch, I got my golf clubs and went down and played golf instead of coming back to the conference. Because, listen, church, we serve Christ out of love, period. Period. Number four, true, uh, cultural Christians focus on morality because it's the right thing to do. True Christians focus on knowing God because they have a passion for him. Cultural Christians, number five, don't understand missionaries. True Christians desire to bring the world to Jesus because it's their only hope. Six, cultural Christians have a supreme passion and an obsession that is not Jesus, but influenced by the culture. True Christians have Jesus Christ as their supreme passion. Number seven, cultural Christians zone out when they hear the gospels. The gospel. True Christians have a tender heart for the gospel and they realize it's their only hope and the hope of the world. Number eight, Cultural Christians are more susceptible to unbiblical ideas and cultural, cultural ideas, worldly ideas. True Christians, however, compare and submit all of these new ideas under the authority of the word of God. The difference between a cultural Christian and a true Christian is pretty vast once you dig into it. But the fact of the matter is, church, Part of the reason you might get frustrated with the people around you who call themselves Christians are because they don't realize they are cultural Christians. Your passions are not theirs. And the sad thing is, can you be a true Christian but, but pass on the outside as a cultural Christian? Maybe, but you will be extremely frustrated. And when you sit in a class or you sit in an in a, in a environment where you hear any meat of God at all, that is all the way through his word, you will end up like my friends around that table that day, and you will think to yourself, why have I not heard this before? Sadly, the fact is, many people are in this situation, and they simply don't know it. That's the saddest thing. <laughs> Jesus ran into somebody like that in John chapter 3. And guess what his name was? 
You got it. Jesus with Nicodemus is answering this very question. Famous meeting between Jesus and a religious ruler. Listen, Nicodemus was a teacher of the Bible. He's not just some slow off the, off the, you know, I go to church once in a while. This guy was teacher. He was a, people called him rabbi. Do you know what rabbi means? It literally means teacher. That was his name. Like you would call me Pastor Jarvis, and please don't call me Pastor Jarvis, or Pastor Craig, whatever you want to, just call me Craig, right? But his name would be Rabbi Nicodemus. You'd expect this guy to know some stuff. And here's the thing, Nicodemus thought he knew some stuff. He thought he knew a lot of stuff. But his confidence was in his nationality and not a personal relationship with God. Otherwise, he would have recognized God sitting across the table from him. Join with me in John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He's been in religious circles a long time. John wants us to know right off, this guy is a ruler of the Jews. His birth puts him ahead of any Gentile. And his training, his theological training, puts him ahead of most Jews. This guy was top-notch as far as theological teachers go. But he doesn't know. He's a false teacher. He thinks he's leading people to the God of the Bible, but Jesus is about to drop a bomb on him. He's actually, Jesus is going to tell him, Nicodemus, what you think you're doing, you're actually doing the opposite. Nicodemus is a cultural Christian. He thinks he's going to heaven. He thinks he doesn't lack anything spiritually. He thinks he's right there on the right track. And he's only coming to Jesus because he wants to find out if Jesus is on the same track as him. Look in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, what's the first word Nicodemus says to Jesus? It's, It's up on the screen. Rabbi. Rabbi means Why do you think Nicodemus called Jesus teacher? First word out of his mouth. What do you think? I think he's buttering him up. Nicodemus wants to find out if Jesus is a real thing. So he starts off by giving him tons of compliments. Rabbi, teacher, we know that you're a teacher. And I don't think he's doing this maliciously. Rabbi, teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do the signs you're doing unless God is with him. A couple of things. When did Nicodemus come to see Jesus? What time of the day was it? Night. And is it light or dark at night? Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus in the dark? He probably doesn't want anyone to see him. He's willing to check Jesus out, but he doesn't want to risk his reputation. So he comes to Jesus by night. And particularly because what just happened? Jesus went in and tore up the temple. Like he made a mess of things. Pharisees and and the Sadducees are kind of ticked at Jesus right now. So Nicodemus is not going to want to, you know, hoity-toity with Jesus. He He wants to be on the right side. So he comes to Jesus by night. But he knows there must be something about Jesus that is different. I think way down deep in Nicodemus' heart, there was a little question. There was a little unsatisfactory spot. And I think the only way he could get satisfaction 
is by coming to Jesus because I think God drew him in that direction. Nicodemus starts by saying, you're a teacher. Why does he think that Jesus is a teacher? Because he can do cool stuff, man. He can make lame walk. By this point, in, we've now skipped ahead. Jesus has performed the miracle at Cana, turning water to wine, but only a few people realize what happened there. Apparently, by now, there's been several signs. Jesus has done several miracles. We're not told of many in John right now, but Nicodemus knows about them. He's hearing word left and right. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Nicodemus says to Jesus, I know you must be from God because you're doing some pretty amazing signs. And the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to do some pretty cool stuff too. So I'm, I know you, you must be like on the right track. However, Nicodemus believes in Jesus simply because of the stuff he can see. He's believing because of the signs. So he tries to put Jesus on equal footing with himself. Rabbi, you're a teacher like me. God is with you. You do miracles. You are a teacher come from God just like me. God must be with you. Nicodemus is revealing all his cards too soon. He has an incorrect view of himself, and he's putting that on Jesus. I'm right with God because I have theological training. I was born in the right way. I'm a cultural Christian. I, I, I filled in all the boxes. Jesus, apparently you have too. You do signs. You teach really well. Apparently, we're in the same boat together. Nicodemus is trying to pigeonhole Jesus as somebody just like him. So Jesus comes back at Nicodemus with the weirdest comeback in the world, like Jesus usually does. Verse 3. He doesn't answer his question. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, it's a nice cloak you got on today. Thanks for inviting me over. Nicodemus, why are you coming by night? Are you chicken? He doesn't deal with any of that stuff. Instead, he launches into a statement in verse 3. Jesus answered him and said, now this would be a weird conversation where you just have somebody just blah, bring out like, let's get to the meat of it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Where did that come from? Jesus is not pulling any punches with Nicodemus. He's going to point out Nicodemus' fall, faults, his flaws, right at the get-go. It's like Nicodemus says, no one can do these signs that you're doing unless they're born from God, unless they're come from God. And Jesus comes back with a very clear punch. He, d- he says, forget that no one. No one's going to get into the kingdom unless they, unless they are born ab- from above. He, pull, he pulls out his, his ace card right at the beginning. He said, it doesn't matter where you were born physically. It doesn't matter what culture you were born into. It doesn't matter how much you've taught the Bible. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much you've done for the poor. It doesn't matter how many times you've attended temple. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices or candles you've lit. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. What matters is, do you believe in God? And do you believe the God of Scripture. Being born is where everyone starts. Everyone starts by being born. Jesus says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus understands kingdom. Every Jew was waiting for the kingdom of God. He understands the kingdom of God. In fact, all Jews would be admitted into God's kingdom. It was taught apart from those deliberately giving out apostasy or guilty of extraordinary wickedness. If that's not you, you get a free ticket into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus Nicodemus taught this. It was in the Mishnah. He taught this truth. 
Jesus hits him where it hurts. And he says, no, 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 that's not it. What matters is what you believe. What you're doing is not enough. You're a cultural Jew. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, okay, let's talk about this born again thing. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And at that point, Jesus should have said, you're the dumbest person I've ever talked to, right? That's a dumb statement. So was Nicodemus dumb or was he tremendously confused? We hear born again all the time. It's at every football game when you're watching on TV. You have to be born again. We got it, right? Born again. Some of us don't understand what it means, but we've heard the term. Never heard it before. Never used before. In fact, Nicodemus has been teaching something for so long he can't possibly conceive of another way. All Jews get to heaven. Jesus, you're a Jew. You're in heaven. What, what, what are you creating this hassle for? You're born a Jew, you're in, unless you do some extraordinary wickedness or you're teaching some crazy apostasy, which I don't think you're doing, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. You're in, I'm in, we're both teachers. Let's just get along. How about we do stuff together? Verse five, Jesus cleared it up a little bit more. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There's two things going on here. I was at my children's birth, so I know every birth, there's a lot of water involved. There's a physical birth where water is involved. But there's another thing. Nicodemus sees all of these Jews being baptized in water by John the Baptist, and he's thinking to himself, you're Jewish. Why are you getting baptized? Why are you in the water with John? Why? Water is a significant thing for Nicodemus, so Jesus clears it up for him and points directly to that to illustrate two things. You have to be born physically, but you also have to be born spiritually. Everyone's born physically. If you're listening to me right now, congratulations, you've been born physically. But not everybody's been born spiritually. That is something completely different, and that's why it's called a rebirth, a born again. It actually comes from Ezekiel 36, 24, and I think this is what Nicodemus probably thought about when Jesus starts talking about water and being born again. Exodus 36, he's probably taught this before, Old Testament passage. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you, this is God talking to Israel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle, hear this, clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you. I will remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Sprinkle, cleanse, water, it's all there. And I'll bet you anything. This is the passage Nicodemus thought about when Jesus said you must be born again. Everyone's born of the flesh. Everyone's born physically. But you must be born again. In fact, he clears it up even further in verse 6. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is what, church? Flesh. Congratulations. You've been born of the flesh. Big accomplishment. Johanna has been born. (laughs) But Johanna must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus, you have to have a new heart. 
it's really hard to see the wind, where it starts, where it goes. I don't know how it even starts, but it, I can feel it on my face. And when I'm bicycling, I can feel it pushing against me. The Spirit of God is the same thing. We never know where the Spirit of God is at work, but he's always at work. And we never know who he's working in, but he's always working in people. And Nicodemus was one of the people that the Spirit of God was working in, and Nicodemus didn't even know it. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Do you want to know why he said that? He's not confused. He is offended. He's ticked. He's saying, how can this thing, these things be? Jesus has offended him. Because Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, everything that you've taught up to this point in your life, everything you've told other people to do is wrong. And Nicodemus didn't take it well. He might have even banged the table when he said that. How can these things be? Imagine serving the poor, dedicating your life to it, moving to a new location, giving all you have for a ministry, and Jesus shows up and says, yeah, that's not enough. Nicodemus has given his whole life to this, and he's got some young whippersnapper across the table telling him, yeah, you're doing it wrong. How would you feel? It's hard, right? It's a blow to the pride. When you come face to face with the fact that you thought you were a Christian and the whole time you weren't, that hurts. Some people respond well. It's always a blow to the pride. Pride is a really, we love our pride, don't we? Don't tell me what to do. I'll tell you what to do. We love our pride. But when we come to Jesus, if you're going to be born again, your pride is always what gets hit first. Always. Nicholas's emotion here probably include despair, disbelief, offense, defense. He's going through the whole gamut of emotions because he doesn't like what Jesus is saying, but he's willing to keep listening. Verse 10, Jesus offends him even more. (laughs) Look what he says to him. Jesus answered and said, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? How would you feel? Yeah, not in my house. Get out of my, wherever we're meeting, not not here. I think this is the kicker for Nicodemus. Jesus literally is saying, have you been teaching my word all this time and you missed the most important thing? Christianity is not about where you're born or where you grew up. It's about what you believe that changes your life. In fact, Jesus skipped down to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus goes directly to the heart of the matter. He goes directly to the gospel, and he pulls out in his great compassion for Nicodemus, he pulls out a story that Nicodemus knows well. In the Old Testament, in Numbers 21, the Israelites were complaining against God. Food is falling from the sky. (laughs) They're eating food, miracle food, every day, nonstop. 
And because they complain, they get some meat along the way, protein and wafers. You know, who, who could want it better? But they had it for so long, they got ticked, and they complained against God. And God got ticked at them. So he, he gave them snakes that started biting them until they repented. Some of them died. And then he said, Moses, the way that we'll know that they've repented is I want you to put up a pole and wrap a brass snake around it. Everyone who looks up at the pole with the snake on it will survive. By the way, how many of you know who the WHO is now? The World Health Organization, everybody know that group now? Ah, the group. You know what their symbol is? A pole with a snake on it. Interesting, huh? These people see the symbol of Christ every day and miss it every day. Because in the New Testament, Jesus was put on a cross, and he was lifted up. And in number 17, we are given a snapshot into the future of what it would take to have us forgiven of our sins for eternity. There would be a symbol that was put on a cross, and everyone who looked to that would receive eternal life. Jesus gives Nicodemus a picture of the gospel. This is one of those things that after Jesus rose from the dead, I, I can't get off on this because I'm already over time. All right, so, but after Jesus rose from the dead, he walks on the road to Emmaus. You heard this story before? And two guys are walking around, and they're, they're so sad. They're just bummed out. Uh, we, thought Jesus, we thought Jesus was a Messiah, and Jesus is actually standing with them. And Jesus, it says in that passage of Scripture, told them story after story after story from the Old Testament about how all those things pointed toward Jesus. How would you like to be in that class? Story after story. They were so amazed by his teaching, they invited him to dinner, and then he revealed himself to, to them as the risen Christ. Jesus explains to Nicodemus the same thing. He uses stories from the Old Testament to explain to them the gospel, the changing, life-changing story. And he uses one word, well, actually, he uses several words over and over again. So we're going to play a little game right now. I'm going to read through these very familiar passages these next few, John 3.16 is one of them, and you're going to tell me what words stand out more than others in these verses. You ready? You've got to pay attention. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What words stick out to you in these, this past, these verses more than any other words? Got a couple? Believe? Saved? Condemn? Actually, here they are. I've highlighted them for you. Believe is four times. Son or him, referring to the Son of God, six times. World, four times. Condemn, three times. Simply put, if you pull all those words out of there and put it into plain English for us to understand today, here's the emphasis of Jesus Christ. The world must believe in the Son of God to escape being condemned. That is the message of the gospel. 
And if you add in the verses before this, 14 and 15, there's two more verses that talk about son and one more that says the word believe. It is all over in here. And here is what Jesus is trying to say. The world must believe in the Son of God to escape condemnation. That is the gospel. Up to now, we have no teachings from Jesus and John. This is the first. At the end of the last chapter, we have signs. And we have news that there are more signs that are not written about. In fact, in John 2, 23, it says, when he was in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw what, church? When they saw the signs. Are signs spiritual or physical? Signs are physical. Signs are physical. Read it again. For many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You know what's interesting about this passage of Scripture? It is this. They were influenced by the miracles, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They were influenced by the miracles, but they didn't believe in Jesus. How do I know that? This is going to blow your mind. Because the words are compelling. The word believe and entrust is the same word. Literally it says, they believed in Jesus, Jesus didn't believe in them. Isn't that crazy? They believed in Jesus, Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because they were amazed by physical things. They didn't grasp the spiritual truth. Their belief in this world didn't shift to belief in Jesus Christ. This whole message series is on how to make followers of Jesus Christ. To recap, let me just bring you along the way. We started with how we talk about Jesus. And Jesus said, simply come and see. 14 months of of, of his life, of his ministry, was not take up your cross and follow me language. It was just come and see. Follow me. Hang out. Watch what I do. Number two, we talked about Jesus' power to change our lives. We point people to Jesus and to experience his power. Mary sharing Jesus at the wedding at Cana. She had experienced Jesus. It was time for her to let others experience him as well. Number three, we talked about making roadblocks. This is where the people in the temple set up tables to make money off people trying to worship creating roadblocks to God instead of pathways and highways. Our job is to remove blockades and to give people the clearest picture of Jesus that we can. And today, the goal of bringing people to Jesus is we've got to dispel cultural Christianity and be able to understand what real Christianity is about. So I have two so what's for you. Number one, a wrong view of yourself can harm you. So we warn others in love. Nicodemus had what he thought was a very clear view of himself, but he was wrong. He thought he was doing all the right things, but he was wrong. He was teaching other people what he thought was right, but he was wrong. So church, it is imperative that we have a clear view, an honest view of ourselves. What do we base our relationship on God on? If it's not on belief, in the Son of God, if it's on anything else, we risk our spiritual relationship with God. 
And I want to tell you, a lot of people live their lives this way, and they're going to be surprised at Judgment Day. Did you know that? Not to scare you, but there's a verse in Scripture that Jesus says himself in Matthew 7, 22. Many will, on that day will say to me, who are they talking to on Judgment Day, church? Many will say to me, Jesus. Yeah. On Judgment Day, you get to see Jesus. You know, the sandal-wearing, robe-wearing, beach-walking, beachcomber that's going to forgive everybody and loves everybody? That guy? On that day, many will say to me, Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, what, church? I, I don't know who you are. It's not that I don't want to. I, I, I don't know who you are. I never knew, knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. True believers don't rely on being born a certain way, avoiding certain sins, performing spiritual activities, voting a certain way, being good to our neighbor, doing as many good things as we can, even preaching the Bible. None of that gets it. None of these activities will affect or save any person, any individual. Only belief in Jesus Christ will do that. Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be what church? It's belief in Jesus Christ, that is it. And if he didn't make this clear enough for us, I don't know what else he could do. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, that's pretty plain and simple, wouldn't you say? Christians are not defined by their actions, but by their ownership. Number two, let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. The Spirit lives to draw people to Jesus Christ. We cannot manipulate someone to change. Don't you wish you could, though? Aren't there people in your life that you're just going to yourself, man, you are just wrecking things. If I could put the right words together at just the right time, maybe I could, poof, make you a Christian. The fact of the matter is we cannot. So we wait and we pray for God to work. In other words, church, we're a lot like Jesus with Nicodemus. Start with where they are. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. So what did Jesus do? Started with a bunch of Old Testament stuff. Talked about kingdom of God. Talked about the snake on the pole. Talked about stuff that Nicodemus would get to bring him to where Nicodemus needed to be. So church, where do who's your one? I'm going to pound this into the ground all year long. You have time and you have friends. Put them together once a week. Sit down with somebody and just give a friend your time. That's it. You don't have to have an agenda. You don't have to pull out the Bible. Have coffee once a week. Give them your time, and you will be so amazed at the conversations God will open up for you. Just give somebody your time. Jesus used all of the stories, all of these things Nicodemus had already spoken of and learned a thousand times. And then let the Spirit do the work. It's not our job to pull people kicking and dragging into heaven. That's God's job. <laughs> Did you know that was C.S. Lewis' testimony? C.S. Lewis said he was the, 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 the most, what do you call himself? The most, um, what do you call it when you don't want to do something? Yes, the most reluctant sinner in heaven, the most reluctant Christian in heaven. He said God carried him kicking and screaming into the kingdom. But that's God's job, not ours. 
Our job is to share and to pray and to give people our time and just love them. I finish with this. We hear of Nicodemus only two more times in Scripture. Did you know this? If you didn't, this is going to be your favorite part of the message today. The first time, Nicodemus is standing in front of a Sanhedrin. This is a group of religious zealots who have decided that they want to kill Jesus. They're going to go after him. And Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. Says he hasn't done anything wrong. He's a righteous dude. He's not done anything wrong. Let's not do this. And so they hold off. Short, little passage. But the next passage is going to knock you on your seat. The next time we hear about Nicodemus is after Jesus dies. He dies on the cross. You have the sun blacking out, earth shaking, have all of that. Jesus gives up his spirit. It is finished. The guard says, truly, this is the son of God. All of that has happened. Now it's time to take the body down and put it in a tomb. Church, who did that? Joseph of Arimathea and one other guy. Guess what his name was? Nicodemus. John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Remember that story? Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because the Jewish day of the preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, that is where they laid Jesus. Church, how many people laid Jesus? How many people put him into the tomb? Joseph of Arimathea would have been, that is where he laid Jesus. What does the Bible say? That is where Nicodemus got the privilege of putting Jesus' body lovingly in the tomb. Now, this is, this is the kicker. Whether or not Nicodemus was changed that night with his conversation in John chapter 3, whether or not that happened, Nicodemus knew what? Jesus is dead. Maybe I hoped in the wrong thing. Dead people don't come back to life. Never seen that before. Jesus is dead. And even then, even though Nicodemus had to face the fact, maybe I'm wrong on this, his love for Jesus Christ caused him to go get that dead body and put it in a tomb. He didn't know Jesus was going to raise again in three days. He didn't know that. But I believe whatever happened in John 3 hit him right here so that he... He didn't want to be a cultural Christian anymore. He wanted to be a Christian in love with Jesus. And that love drove him to the cross to take down the body of what was the enemy of the Pharisees and put 75 pounds of his money into a decent burial for this guy. How many of you think Nicodemus became a believer sometime between John 3 and when Jesus died on the cross. I think he did. Even though Jesus dies, he is compelled for his love for this man, and he is changed. Church, God works from the inside out, not the other way around. You can look as good as you want from the outside, 
you can burn candles, you can crawl on glass, you can say a million Hail Marys, you can, you can help the poor, you can sell your body to the flames because of your truth, because of the truth you won't give up for Jesus Christ. You can sell all you have and give to the poor. You can live the most profound, amazing spiritual life on the outside, but if you're not changed from the inside out, it's cultural. You'll get your accolades. People will say, you're a good person. Your funeral will be amazing. They might even line outside the door, but you are not a believer if you don't change from the inside out. No matter what you do on the outside, it never works the other way around. Jesus says, you must believe in me to have eternal life. That is the crux of the gospel. Where the spirit lives, there's truth and contentment and peace and joy. So the final question I have for you is, how do I know if I have the spirit? How do I know if I've been changed from the inside out? How do I know if I'm trying to do it the other way around, from the outside in? How do I know this is, this is real for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. You ready? Someone who has zero reliance on blank for salvation. Fill anything you want in that blank. Anything. Put any word there you want. Someone who has zero reliance on blank for salvation, but has personally and sincerely apologized to God for their sin and professed faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, that is a true Christian. But if you can fill that blank in with any other word than Jesus Christ, you're doing it wrong. And you might be offended by that. Like you might be Nicodemus and I might be Jesus. How can these things be? (laughs) that's where pride comes in everybody who comes to Jesus has to crawl over their pride first and if you can do it there's such freedom on the other side it's not by what you do it's by who you love does the spirit of God live inside you this is why the Old Testament passage says take away a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh Your passion for Jesus Christ will drive you to do everything in this life. I don't watch my words because God might be counting them against me on judgment day. I don't pray because I'm trying to gain favor with humans or God. I don't attend church because it's the right thing to do. I don't give money to Jesus because it might persuade God to let me into heaven. I don't share Jesus with others because I'm forced to. I do all these things because I love Jesus, period. And that's it. And that's the difference between a cultural Christian and a true Christian. I love this. Jesus treated Nicodemus with love. Truth, but love. All the other Pharisees called Jesus together so they could trap him. (laughs) They're looking to get him in his words. And he could have looked at Nicodemus the same way and say, ah, you're just all waste of time but he was willing to give Nicodemus his time. Church, are there people in your lives that you've already written off? Tough question. Some people you think might be beyond reaching. Let me tell you, the power of the Spirit of God is way more powerful than anything our words can string together. The power of God exists that can continue to change. You want to know why, why I believe God does miracles today? The greatest miracle that God does is standing right in front of you. It's a changed life. I shudder to think what I would be if God hadn't rescued me. And God's still rescuing people. And it's our opportunity, it's our privilege to be his ambassadors.
So find someone this week. Talk to them in love like Jesus talked to Nicodemus and share with them the truth about cultural Christianity and what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I'm grateful, Father, for this very familiar story from John chapter 3. And I'm grateful that Nicodemus became a changed man. This whole thing could have happened and he could have walked away unchanged like several other people that met Jesus, several others that saw him do miracles, even his own disciples, many of them who followed him for a little while and then abandoned him. But Nicodemus fell in love with you and it changed his life, even to when you died and he didn't know what was happening next. His love for you drew him to the cross to pull you down and give you a dignified burial. I am so grateful for Nicodemus. And I pray, Father, as we seek to find others that have yet to believe in you, that we would be patient, loving, and gracious, but always truthful in the way that we share your love with others. Thank you, Father, for redeeming those of us that know you as our Savior. And may you create in this church a passion for the gospel that will change Carol's stream and our surrounding area. Every day we exist. I pray in Jesus' name.